morning, everybody. Good to see all of you here. This morning, we're going to continue in the book of Acts. The book of Acts describes uh, how God grew the early church, the first Christians, in the decades immediately following Jesus' death and resurrection and his ascension into heaven. And last time, we read about Paul and Barnabas, who were preaching the gospel in a town called Pisidian Antioch, big town. And Paul and Barnabas were welcomed warmly at first uh, by the Jewish people there. But after about a week, when they began to preach that Jesus died also to save non-Jews or Gentiles, the Jews became very upset. They, were perse- uh, they, began a, they stirred up a persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and eventually they chased them out of town. And so Paul and Barnabas then fled to this city about 90 miles away called Iconium. Uh, this is in the Mediterranean. And, and then Acts 14.1 says this. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So Paul and Barnabas uh, came to this town in Iconium, and as their uh, practice was, they went to the synagogue first, and they spoke the gospel in such a way, it says that a great number of people, probably thousands, these, these were towns of, of, of you know, uh, city in Antioch was probably about 50,000 people. So when you talk about a great number of people, you're talking probably about thousands. But it says thousands of both Jews and Greeks believed in Jesus. And this single verse um, arrested my attention this week so much that basically I decided to, vote all, to devote all of today's message to this. Because as a preacher who regularly preaches the gospel and as Christians who uh, regularly speak the gospel to non-believers, what do we want to see happen? We, we want the people that we're speaking the gospel to, to hear it, to believe it, and to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, right? And so when we read a Bible verse like Acts 14.1, which describes a time when Paul and Barnabas spoke the gospel and a great number of people believed it, then we naturally want to follow them and do whatever Paul and Barnabas did that caused the non-believers to believe, right? So what does the verse say they did? After entering the Jewish synagogue, Paul and Barnabas, quote, spoke in such a way that a great number believed. Now, if we interpret this verse incorrectly, if we do not consider everything else we've read in Acts, uh, or if we don't consider any of Paul's other writings in the New Testament, then we might think that this verse means that Paul spoke the gospel so eloquently, so captivatingly, that his speech caused a great number of people to believe. And if that's what this verse means, then it's going to be very discouraging for most of us, right? Because most of us here probably get a little nervous speaking the gospel to people in private, let alone in public. And if this verse is saying that other people's faith in Jesus rests on how good of a speaker I am and on my ability to captivate non-believers, then I'd rather not speak the gospel to anyone, right? Because I don't want to mess it up. But if we correctly interpret this verse, 14.1, by considering the context in Acts and by considering the rest of Paul's writings, then hopefully this verse will actually help us to speak the gospel to non-Christians more confidently and in such a way that hopefully many will believe, God willing. 
And so to learn how to speak the gospel in such a way that non-believers will believe, this message, today's message is divided into three parts. First of all, we're going to talk about three things not to rely on, and then we're going to talk about four things to ask for, and then we're going to talk about three things to speak. Okay? So first, to speak the gospel in such a way that non-believers will believe, like in today's passage, Paul says in his writings, you must not rely on three things. First, do not rely on eloquence of speech. Okay? So eloquence refers to your, your giftedness as a speaker, your persuasiveness, your smoothness, your incredible way with words. But listen to the way that Paul describes how he often spoke the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 3, Paul writes, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Okay, so hopefully this is going to be an encouragement to us, right? Uh, that sometimes when Paul spoke the gospel, he felt really weak. He was scared. He trembled as he spoke. Sometimes his voice probably quivered. He did not speak with lofty speech and eloquence. And that's great. You know why? Because lofty speech and eloquence don't make people born again. The Holy Spirit makes people born again. And so if you're not eloquent with words, then know that you're in good company with the Apostle Paul. Okay? God will use your words however he wants to use them. And if you are eloquent with words, then don't think that your eloquence can change the hearts of non-believing men and women. Rely on the Holy Spirit, not on eloquence. That's what Paul says in his writings here. So second, to speak the gospel in such a way that non-believers will believe, don't rely on worldly wisdom. Okay? So when we read about the Apostle Paul preaching the gospel, we might think that he was successful because he had so much worldly wisdom. He did. He was, he was so educated. He knew so many languages. He knew so much about the Bible. He knew about other religions. That must have been why he was able to persuade so many non-believers to believe. But read what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, 4-5. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, it's not that Paul wasn't wise about the world or educated. He, he very much was. But he didn't rely on his wisdom. He didn't show off his wisdom when he told the gospel to others. Because he didn't want people to put their faith in the wisdom, the worldly wisdom and education that he had. He wanted people to put their faith in Jesus. As foolish as that might sound to the unbelieving world, right? Putting your faith in worldly wisdom in, in an educated person cannot give you eternal life and rescue you from hell. But putting your faith in Jesus Christ and in the power of his resurrection will save you from hell. And Christians, Satan wants you to think, this is what he wants you to think. You're not educated enough to tell the gospel to others. You haven't been to seminary. You haven't been to Bible college. Don't touch it. 
Satan wants you to believe that because you don't know your Bible well enough, because you don't have all the answers, and you know you don't have all the answers, then you shouldn't even try to talk to non-believers about God. Don't believe Satan's lies, though. Even the wisest and most educated people on earth do not have all the answers, and it's okay not to have all the answers. And I would be very uh, concerned about anybody who said they did have all the answers. But we do have the answer, which is the simple message of salvation in Jesus Christ that's due only to God's grace alone and that's received through faith alone. Those are the big pieces we need to get right. Third, to speak the gospel in such a way that non-believers will believe, don't rely on your influential position, your position. So we might think Paul was an effective evangelist because of his influential position. He was trained by Gamaliel, who was the most esteemed rabbi of the first century. He was a Roman, Paul was a Roman citizen. Paul was a Pharisee. I mean, he was at the top in the Jewish world. And so we might think that people believe Paul because of his esteemed position in society. But, but if you know Paul's story, then you know that most of these things didn't actually work in his favor. Yeah, he was trained by Gamaliel. Yes, he was one of the most influential young Pharisees in Jerusalem at one point. But Paul had also been a Christian killer. He led the persecution against the Christians in Jerusalem. His reputation was that as a, of a persecutor of Christians. So what happened is when Paul traveled around the Roman Empire and preached, he actually had to undo much of the incorrect rhetoric that he previously espoused. And, and Paul couldn't rely on his influential position anymore. Why? Because the Jews kicked him out of Jerusalem. He lost it all when he accepted Christ. And so in Paul's writings, this is what he says. He says, it's a good thing to speak the gospel without having an influential position to rely on. God doesn't need that. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So you, so you don't have to have worldly power and influence to get people to believe the gospel. Power and influence don't make people born again. In fact, God has chosen what is weak in the world intentionally to shame what is strong in the world. God doesn't want us to boast in our, our worldly strength. Rather, God wants us to boast in the power of God working through weak people like us. And that's all throughout Paul's writings. So to review here, this first section, when you speak the gospel to non-believers, do not rely on eloquence of speech or worldly wisdom or an influential position. Let's move to the second part of the message. When you speak the gospel to non-believers, there are four things you should ask for. First, ask God to grant repentance and faith to non-believers. This is the language used in the New Testament to describe how God saves sinners when the gospel is preached. In 2 Timothy and Acts eleven eighteen, where it says, when they, the Jews, heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. 
You ever, have you ever prayed for a non-believing friend or a loved one of yours? Would, have you prayed for them that they would trust in Christ? When we pray for non-Christians, what exactly are we asking God to do? Yeah, we might ask God to, to woo these people closer to himself. Yeah, we might ask God to use people or situations to bring a person closer to Jesus. But what we truly want is more than that, right? We don't want non-Christians to merely be open to the idea of God. That's not our prayer. We don't want our non-Christian loved ones to draw closer to God without actually trusting in him. No, what we're asking God, we want God to make non-believers born again. We want God to remove their heart of stone using biblical language and to replace it with a heart of flesh that now desires God, that enjoys and treasures Jesus Christ. And so we also don't want Christians, uh, sorry, we also don't, uh, we don't want non-Christians just to say that they believe for our sake, right? We want is that we want to see non-Christians truly convicted of sin. Just we we want to see non-Christians really be convinced of their need of a savior and to repent and to turn away from the world and to turn to Jesus in faith and to trust Him for eternal life, just like we have, hopefully. Acts eleven eighteen says that God grants repentance that leads to life. So let's pray bold prayers. We don't have to play games with our prayers and simply ask God to woo people closer to him. Let's ask God to break into people's lives and to grant them repentance in response to the preaching of the gospel. Let's pray big prayers. God, save them. Save them, Lord. Give them faith in the gospel as it's preached. Ask God to grant repentance and faith to non-believers. Second, Ask the Holy Spirit to fill you before you speak the gospel or as you're speaking the gospel. So to, to, to ask the Holy Spirit to fill you, as we've seen here in Acts, does not mean to ask the Holy Spirit to enter you or to live in you, because if you're a Christian, the Bible's very clear that the Holy Spirit has already entered you and lives in you now. To ask the Holy Spirit to fill you means to ask him to anoint you for the task he's given you. It means asking the Holy Spirit, work powerfully in me today, please, by your grace. It's it's a way of acknowledging that you're unable to change the hearts of non-believers, but God can do anything he wants. It's, it's It's a way of acknowledging your need for the Holy Spirit to work in power if people are gonna be saved. Often in scripture, immediately before a believer speaks God's word in a powerful way, it says this phrase. It says that he or she was, was filled with the spirit. Luke 1.67 says that before Jesus' relative Zechariah uh, prophesied about John the Baptist and Jesus, he was, quote, filled with the spirit. Acts 4.8 says that Peter was filled with the Spirit right before he defended his gospel preaching to the Jewish Sanhedrin. Peter was already saved, okay? He already had the Holy Spirit, but this was a special anointing, a special filling. Acts 13.9 says that Paul was filled with the Spirit right before he rebuked this magician, Illumis, for trying to lead people away from God. This is important because when we speak to non-believers the gospel, we want God to speak to them, 
We want God to teach their hearts. And so we need to ask God to do that. And that being said, while the Holy Spirit does dwell in those of us who believe, we can't control the Holy Spirit, right? We can't force him to anoint us. We can't force him to move in power whenever we want him to. The Holy Spirit is sovereign, okay? He's mysterious. Jesus said in John 3 that the Spirit moves like the wind moves. The Spirit moves where he wants to, when he wants to. You don't know exactly when he's coming and going. But this same Spirit uh, who, who moves like the wind has also given us the tool of prayer so that we might ask things of him. Prayer is not merely wishing that God will do something for us. Prayer is actually a tool God has given to us through which God often works to do his will on earth. That's why we pray. If you think prayer is just throwing up Hail Marys, well, that's a bad term, but uh, yeah, <clears throat> that's a football term. Some people do pray Hail Marys, but, but if you think it's just throwing up, God, I hope, I hope maybe you'll listen. I hope, you know, this is what I want, but I don't really know if you're gonna do it. What we need to do is come in faith and say, God, you've appointed prayer and you're sovereign and we're gonna submit to your will, but thank you for giving us this opportunity that you've, you've invited us to be on mission with you to make your will happen on earth and so we pray confidently in the name of Jesus that this would happen. That's a totally different approach to prayer. And so, we can and should ask God to fill us with his Holy Spirit as we're talking to others about the gospel. Third, uh, to speak the gospel in such a way that non-believers will believe, ask God to give you supernatural boldness. This is a theme we've continued to see in Acts. You see, because of the fearfulness and timidity of your flesh, and because of the opposition that you're gonna face sometimes when you speak the gospel, you need to ask God to give you a boldness and courage that's not in you. You need his boldness, his courage in you, work at work. And by, by supernatural boldness, we don't mean a, a stubborn, prideful arrogance in the face of opposition. What we're talking about is a humble, yet confident boldness to speak about the grace of God in Jesus Christ, even in the face of opposition, even in the face of belligerence. We're talking about a persevering courage to keep preaching the gospel that God has given us to preach even when the world mocks us and calls us foolish. That requires a special Holy Spirit anointed boldness. We're describing a boldness that does not come from our flesh but comes from God. And it fills us with sincerity. And it fills us with humility. And it fills us with broken hearts for lost people. And it fills us with a faith-filled confidence that the gospel is the power of God to save all who believe. So I've got to keep speaking this. In Ephesians 6, 18 to 20, the Apostle Paul asks the church to pray that God would give him boldness to preach the gospel. Okay, verses 18 to 20 say, pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication or prayer for all of the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me, 
in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And then when the Jewish Sanhedrin warned the Christians to stop speaking the gospel in Jerusalem, remember they threatened them, what did the church do? They gathered together and they asked God for boldness. Acts 4, 29 to 31 says, and now Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And then God responds. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So in verse 29, the Christians pray for boldness. Verse 31, God filled the Christians with the Holy Spirit and enabled them to continue to speak the word of God with boldness. So to speak the gospel in such a way that non-believers will believe, ask God to give you supernatural, humble boldness. Fourth, to speak the gospel in such a way that non-believers will believe, ask the church to pray with you. Ask the church to pray with you. One of the clear messages of the book of Acts is that God works powerfully in and through churches that pray together. Hear that? In Acts 1.14, the Christians gathered together to pray with one accord just before God the Holy Spirit descended upon them. In Acts 1.24, the Christians gathered to pray with one accord just before God showed them which man should replace Judas as an apostle. In Acts 2.42, the Christians devoted themselves to regularly praying together. In Acts 4.31, the Christians asked God to continue to bless their efforts to spread the gospel, and God made the earth quake as a sign of his blessing. In Acts 12.5, the Christians were gathered together, praying fervently for Peter who was in prison, and then God sent an angel to free Peter from prison. In Acts 13.3, the church in Antioch was fasting and praying as they sought God's direction for their church, and God answered them and told them to set apart Paul and Barnabas to take the gospel to other peoples of the earth. God works in special ways when his people pray together. And so, the application is, pray with God's people, his church, whenever you have the opportunity to do so. And share your prayer requests with God's people so that we can join you in praying. This is why we put prayer requests on the back of connection cards. Um, this, is, this is why we pray together every week in our community groups. This is why we have a church-wide prayer meeting every few months. It's, it's not because we're not busy and we're looking for stuff to do. It's because we're desperate for God. It's because we truly believe that he is all we have. One of the most effective evangelists, uh, evangelists in history was the 19th century preacher from London named Charles Spurgeon. And Spurgeon's preaching led thousands of non-believers to trust in Jesus. And Spurgeon was a brilliant man. He really was one of a kind. Uh, he was very eloquent. He was able to gather loud crowds who flooded the, the doors of his church to hear him preach. But Spurgeon did not rely on these things to make people born again. He relied on the Holy Spirit. 
See, Spurgeon's ministry was so successful that people would travel to his church from everywhere else to learn the secret sauce, right? What's the secret of the success? What are you guys doing that we can replicate at our church so that we can grow like you're growing? And the story goes that when visitors would come to Spurgeon's church, he would take them to the basement of the church. And they had converted the basement of the church into a prayer room where people were on their knees interceding all throughout the week. And he called the prayer room, this is the powerhouse. This is the powerhouse of the church. If the engine room is out of action, he said, then the whole mill, the whole mill will grind to a halt. We cannot expect blessing if we do not ask. See, Spurgeon's hope was in the power of the Holy Spirit working in response to the prayers of Christians. And so if we want the non-believers in our lives to respond in faith to the gospel message, do we need to ask our brothers and sisters in Christ to pray with us? We need to ask our church to pray with us. We need to come to prayer meetings. We need to be part of community groups and fellowship opportunities to pray with one another, not only for our prayer requests, but so that we can use the gift God has given us to serve others and to pray for them too. So to speak the gospel in such a way that non-believers will believe, these are the four things to ask for. Ask God to grant repentance and faith to non-believers. Ask God the Holy Spirit to fill you before you speak the gospel and as you're speaking the gospel. Uh, Ask God to give you supernatural boldness and ask the church to pray with you. So we covered three things not to rely on, four things to ask for, and now we're gonna cover three things to speak. First, to speak the gospel in such a way that non-believers will believe, speak about Jesus Christ and him crucified. You have to get your gospel right. Because there's a lot of false gospels out, out there. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the heart of the gospel that Jesus Christ on the cross became our substitute. That he suffered the wrath of God that we deserve to suffer for our sin. That he suffered the separation from the Father that we deserve to suffer. That he died the death that we deserve to die. That on the cross, because of his grace, he suffered for and took away from us our sin, our guilt, our shame, our hostility with God, our eternity of hell to which we were enslaved. And then in his resurrection, Jesus justifies us, is is how Paul describes it in his writing. Jesus justified us with himself before God the Father so that God the Father gave us credit for Jesus' righteousness. So that we who believe now are declared, not not only are we not guilty, of sin, but more than that, our account is full with the righteousness of Christ. And all of that is because of Jesus. (laughs) That's the crux of what it means to preach the gospel to non-believers. Don't overcomplicate it. Don't think it's about uh, bringing heaven to earth or being a good, learning how to be a good person. It's all about Jesus Christ and him crucified for us. Paul says it very clearly and succinctly in 1 Corinthians 2.2, for I decided or I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
Jesus Christ crucified for sinners and <clears throat> with the crucifixion, the, it's like two sides of the same coin. The, the flip side is the resurrection. Crucified for sinners and resurrected from the dead is the heart of the gospel. Christ crucified says that our sins earn us suffering and eternal death. Christ crucified says that God loved us while we were still sinners. Christ crucified says that we cannot do anything to earn God's favor or to add to what Christ accomplished on the cross. Christ crucified says that Jesus Christ alone is the Lamb of God who was hung on the cross, who died for sin, and only through Him can we have peace with God. Christ crucified says that salvation in Jesus Christ is entirely, fully, completely a gift of God's grace to us. Christ crucified says that because our own works cannot earn salvation for us, then what is required of us is faith in the sufficiency of Jesus' work on our behalf. The sufficiency. Do you believe it was totally and more than enough? Christ crucified says that because God alone is the author and the finisher of our faith, then all glory goes to God for the salvation that we have. And in the words of Tim Keller, Christ crucified says that you are more wicked than you ever believed, but at the same time, you're more loved and accepted than you ever dared to hope. We want people to believe the gospel, so we must preach the right gospel. We must preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Second, to speak the gospel in such a way that non-believers will believe, speak scripture. Your words do not have divine authority. My words do not have a divine authority. God's words do. And so speak God's words to other people. Memorize his words. Have a Bible nearby so that you can show other people God's words in the Bible. Boy, there's a lot of uh, <clears throat> Christians and non-Christians do this. There's a lot of assumptions about what the Bible says and little snippets of verses we think we know. It's a different ballgame to open the Bible and say, well, let's read what it actually says. Right? We've got to know the word, though, to know what it says. This is another thing I would say about this. Christians, <clears throat> don't be embarrassed about the Bible. Of all the challenges facing Christians in the next century, the biggest question is going to be, are we going to stick to the Bible? That's what it's always been. It's always about what do Christians believe about the Bible? Do we believe the gospel that the Bible preaches? Do we believe that the gospel, uh, that, that God's word is the same yesterday, today, forever? This is Jesus, that the, 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 the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Do we believe it? If you do, then your statement of faith really shouldn't change much. If anything, you will add clarity to what the, the Bible says. Or sorry, add clarity to the issues at hand about what the Bible says about those issues. Right? Um, don't be embarrassed for believing the Bible. I hope you do believe it. Jesus also says this, that we should take seriously if we are ashamed of him and his words then when we meet him face to face, he'll be ashamed of us. That's how serious it is that we do believe the Bible. 
Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, God's word is powerful, and it always accomplishes the purposes he wants to accomplish with it when we speak it or when we read it. Often, think about this, when Jesus or the apostles spoke about the gospel, they would verify the validity and necessity of Christ crucified because they would say, this happened, quote, according to the scriptures. Look at that phrase, according to the scriptures, in, a, in alignment with the scriptures, in accord with the scriptures. Well, in the same way, we can show non-believers how the message of Christ crucified for sinners is the gospel that the Old Testament believers looked forward to. And it's also the same gospel that the New Testament believers were looking back to. We're looking back to Jesus on the cross, or we're looking forward to Jesus on the cross. And so we, this is a prayer, man, that, that we would approach God's word the same way that the psalmist approached God's word. You know, Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in all of the 150 psalms, and the whole thing is about the trustworthiness of the Bible. The whole thing. Psalm 119, 41 and 48, it says, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. That's a love for the word of God that I pray the Holy Spirit would put into us, that we would not take for granted the word of God that we have. So to speak the gospel in such a way that non-believers will believe, don't speak your thoughts, speak scripture. And third, to speak the gospel in such a way that non-believers will believe, speak the way that Jesus spoke. So Jesus Christ is the embodiment of the three-in-one God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. On earth, Jesus was filled with God, the Holy Spirit, right? That's what that means. And Jesus spoke in a way that was fully in accord with the Holy Spirit. So what is the Holy Spirit like? What are the fruit of the Holy Spirit? What, what characterizes the acting and speaking of the Holy Spirit? Well, Galatians 5, to 23 says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So as we read that list, this obviously is not an exhaustive list of how Jesus acted and how he spoke the gospel. And obviously there were times where he spoke with a uh, righteous anger. <clears throat> but in general, these are the ones we need to follow on. There's certainly, there's certainly a lifetime's worth of attributes right here for us to work on and to meditate on with the help of the Holy Spirit. What this means is to speak the gospel with the compassionate love that God has for sinners like you and me. Speak the gospel with joy that God would do this for us. Joy in the Lord's salvation. Speak the gospel with peace as those who come to offer peace with the sovereign 
God of the universe. Speak the gospel with kindness, not hurtfulness. Speak the gospel with goodness because you represent a good and holy God. Speak the gospel with faithfulness, believing that the gospel will save all who belong to God. Speak the gospel with gentleness, just as the Lord has dealt very gently with you. Speak the gospel with self-control, being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. If we want to love our neighbors as ourselves, then we should seek to speak the gospel the same way that Jesus spoke, the same way that the Holy Spirit speaks, the same way the Father God speaks. And when we realize, this is the other part, that maybe we failed to do this, we failed to speak the gospel the same way that Jesus spoke, well then that gospel that we speak is good news for us too. As we trust Christ to forgive us, as we trust that Christ is gonna help us learn from our mistakes and grant us new grace and mercy to keep speaking the gospel. So to speak the gospel in such a way that non-believers will believe, speak about Jesus Christ and him crucified, speak scripture, and speak the way that Jesus spoke. Okay, so in light of everything that Paul and scripture that we've covered tells us about what not to rely on when we speak the gospel and what to ask for when we speak the gospel and what to speak when we speak the gospel, what does Acts 14.1 mean? Let's read it one more time. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. The Jews and Greeks in Iconium did not believe the gospel because Paul and Barnabas spoke with a superior eloquence or worldly wisdom or an impressive uh, position of power. Rather, as Paul and Barnabas were preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified, the Holy Spirit worked through them with great power, granting many non-believers repentance and faith in Jesus. That's what happened. None of us can ever speak the gospel in such a way that we can guarantee the salvation of the non-believers we're talking to. But our hope and our confidence is in Jesus' own words in John 10, 27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this passage of your word today that we get to meditate on. Thank you so much, Lord, that... Um, you save, you rescue, you desire to be in relationship with people like us who have messed it up. Thank you, God, that we have hope and redemption and life and joy in you and not condemnation. Thank you, God, that you're making all things new and that in your kingdom there's reconciliation and restoration and hope. Lord, we just ask that uh, we would be quick to admit our weakness and our inability to really to do any good of, in and of ourselves, and instead to look to you, to ask you to work through our weaknesses, to ask you to work in mighty ways to 
give us spiritual boldness, to give us encouragement and help, to give us a sense of your presence, and then also to break into the lives of those who, who don't know you. God, please make them born again as they hear the gospel and trust in you. Lord Jesus, you're so good. We just want to give you all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.